Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Ring of Fire, The Sam Cedar Show, The Young Turks, and a speech by John F. Kennedy. Snow from Fox News became the official spokesman for the Bush White House, emphasis on the word official. He drew a distinction between himself and his predecessors, assuring Americans that he would be in the loop and that he was taking the job because he would have the super double secret access needed to do the job properly. In our fourth story in the countdown, did Snow really get that access? When he first started, he won praise for his candor about not knowing stuff. But he's now been there eight months, and sooner or later, I don't know, loses the charm of, aw shucks, ma'am, and moves closer to, well, what do you know? In fact, Dana Milbank in the Washington Post today counts more than 400 times Mr. Snow has said, I don't know, from that famous podium. Just this week, we've scored more than a dozen. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. So I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Oh, I don't know. When it comes to Snow's I don't knows, Iraq looms large. Neither he, he nor I know exactly when hostilities will cease in Iraq. Will they be discussing the particulars of Baker Hamilton report? With the I don't know. Has anyone um, involved in these meetings read the full report? I don't know. Anything today he hadn't thought of before or was new? I, I don't know. Baker Hamilton, was there anything in there that this administration hasn't already considered? I don't know. Again, good question. I don't know. Uh, I mean, there, there was some... But Mr. Snow appears to be something of a renaissance man, not knowing things across a broad spectrum of topics. I don't know the answer about security, and um, and uh, nor do I know about his nephew. I don't know the intent of the public statements. Are you saying Republican Senator Smith is not in favor of democracy? Well, I don't know. And in Snow's defense, sometimes there are known Idanos, and sometimes there are the unknowable Idanos, which does not mean he's not trying. I don't know. That's what I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to find out. He, uh, and I, I don't know. I only know the, the fractional amount. There's no way that anybody's going to know what the vice president said to the king. If you're wondering whether Mr. Snow actually does know and just isn't telling us, well, who knows? Assistant Managing Editor of the Washington Post and winner of the Pulitzer Prize and best-selling author. His latest book is State of Denial, the final book in the Bush at War trilogy. Bob, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire. Thank you. You know, this is an amazing book and a very, very important book because you were privy to inside information about the underpinnings of these policies in the White House. One of the astounding things to me about this and the most dismaying things is how little these decision makers had a sense of history 
And, and, you know, particularly because when we got out of Vietnam, the one consolation that we had after 20 years and 50,000 people killed or wounded was that we've learned our lesson. We've learned the lesson of history. We're never going to do this again. And yet here, in so many parts of this book, you talk about kind of the inescapable analogies between this war, the Iraq war, and the Vietnam war. Yes. But the worst thing is that these guys were all present then. I mean, Cheney and Rumsfeld, as you point out, were in the White House when Saigon was being evacuated. And the other dismaying thing is that Cheney says that one of his principal advisors on this, and the only person who has free access to the White House, is Kissinger, yes. who masterminded that original disaster. Or, or certainly that. the latter stages of it. I, I think that's right. And what we all kind of thought after Vietnam, that we would cherish the lesson and hold it close. And it was Colin Powell who introduced the doctrine, kind of the antidote to Vietnam, namely the doctrine of overwhelming force. Make sure when you go to war that you have enough force to do it as rapidly as possible and in a timely way with the lowest possible casualty levels. And as this book shows, not only did they ignore that, but the denial has to do with the reality of the intelligence and casualty reports and escalating violence that's coming into them for years, and they never kind of come clean with the public and say, oh, by the way, it's getting worse. And they run out, particularly the president regularly saying, oh, we've turned the corner. The terrorists are in retreat. Well, there's secret reports flatly contradicting that on his desk and presented to him. Mr. Woodward, it's, uh, it's Rachel Maddow here. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I think rightly got a huge amount of attention initially when the book first came out is the access of Henry Kissinger to the White House right now, with the White House admitting that he's giving them a lot of the advice that they've been getting on staying the course, essentially, in Iraq. Kissinger recently has stated that no pure military victory is possible for the U.S. in Iraq. Do you think that means that Kissinger will now no longer be welcome at the White House because he's not saying what they want to hear? Or do you think that what appears to be a revival view on his behalf well, will it, also be heard. It does to a certain extent. Of course, I report in the book that a number of years ago, people in the inner circle, including Richard Armitage, who was the Deputy Secretary of State, was saying that they could not win militarily. This was back in 2004. The commander, John Abizade, the general who's the central command commander overseeing the Middle East in Iraq, was saying privately, we can't win this war militarily. And, of course, that's one of the tragedies of this, that there was no straight talk with the public or the Congress or with themselves about the consequence of, hey, we can't win it militarily, so let's come up with an alternative strategy. Now, when you pick all of this apart, one of the root problems is there's no strategy. They go in three and a half years ago and think it's going to be easy. And when the reports start coming in from the CIA and the military saying there's an insurgency, the president worries that somebody's going to go out and say that publicly and that it's going to be in the New York Times. It's going to be in the news media. And in the course of this, 
uh, there are internal conversations and memos that I quote from where they acknowledge they have no strategy. And in a sense, the strategy comes down to what they call victory, but that's not a strategy, that's a goal. Right, exactly. I think the thing that's most important about your book, it is important to have the historical documentation of what happened when, who said what to whom, and what the reaction was. But what I take away most from it is the structural problem of insulation and stick to to a fault in the White House, an inability to adapt to new facts, new circumstances, and to take criticism and adapt to it. Do you see any hope of that changing, or is that a personality problem? Uh, well, I think what's happened since this book came out, since the elections, there has been a wake-up call. And they realize with this Baker-Hamilton study group that they're going to have to come up with some plan that includes being truthful and paints a, a, or at least outlines, provides a roadmap for strategy that people will say, well, that could get us to a point. I, you know, I don't think anyone's really talking about victory now. I think the idea is to get us to a point where there can be the use of old Kissinger phrase, peace with honor. and executive producer of Democracy Now! Uh, she's co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Static, Government Liars, Media Cheerleaders, and the People Who Fight Back. Welcome uh, to the program, Amy. It's great to be with you, Sam. I'm in a cab to the airport, so I hope you can understand me. Uh, I certainly can understand you, and I, uh, and I, and I can understand how uh, you know, you're, you're incredibly busy. You're traveling all across the country. I also I wanted to congratulate you. I don't know if it was last night or the night before, but you last won the... Night. You won the uh, $100,000 Puffin Nation Prize for creative citizenship uh, given by the uh, Nation Institute and Puffin Foundation, awarded to an individual who has challenged the status quo through distinctive, courageous, imaginative, and socially responsible work, and certainly you've done that, so congratulations. Thanks so much, Sam. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just a very important time to get out all forms of independent voices in the media, because the media are the most powerful institutions on earth, whether the way we come to understand the world and the way the rest of the world understands us, and we need independent platform for those discussions about the most important issues of the day, like you have, war and peace, life and death, critical more now than ever. I mean, do you think that there is any real hope for reforming the uh, the, the corporate media, the entire media system in this country? Absolutely. Or I definitely think so. I mean, in a few weeks, there's going to be this national gathering in Memphis, Tennessee, sponsored by Free Press and other organizations on media democracy. And there are people across the political spectrum, thousands will come out, as they did last year and the year before, 
who are deeply concerned about the state of the media, that uh, the networks are, and, you know, overall radio and television falling into the hands of fewer and fewer media moguls, uh, which gives us a very homogenous view of the world. We know how wrong the corporate media got it when it came to the invasion, repeating over and over again the false allegations of weapons of mass destruction. We need a media that tells the truth, that doesn't act as a conveyor belt for the lies of the administration. So do you think that, uh, I mean, some type of legislation that would begin to uh, restrict the the concentration of media and actually force some of these major uh, corporate media companies to sell off some of their assets and basically um, spread access uh, to the airwaves? Is, 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 is that the... F- legislation is absolutely critical because we're basically seeing monopolies growing ever more powerful, and it doesn't help anyone. Um, you know, as the soldiers on the ground who've been sent to Iraq, their lives are on the line for this kind of media consolidation. When you don't get the cracks in the system, and it shouldn't just be cracks, it should be the media as a true sanctuary of dissent. Um, and the, it's very difficult, but absolutely essential for the congressmen and for the senators, for the congress members and senators, to take on these media monopolies. They're afraid because they don't want to get bad press, right? right? They're the ones that convey their message. They're the ones they pay to put out their advertisements. They win or lose elections. And they know across the political spectrum that it is not good when you have one media mogul owning the newspaper, radio, and television in a town. And, you know, you don't have the networks fairly covering this, NBC, ABC, CBS, because behind the scenes, they are writing amicus briefs with each other um, because they are pushing for greater media ownership, uh, meaning the consolidation of it. We need media decentralization. That's what helps the democratic society. And I think, you know, one of the things that people don't understand, too, is that um, it, 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 it hits so many different issues. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we have had uh, such trouble getting uh, broader public uh, financing of campaign uh, campaigns and why we have had uh, trouble uh, limiting the amount of, of television buys and whatnot is, of course, once you concentrate the media in the hands of, of a couple few, the stakes for the amount of political advertising they get every cycle uh, it just simply goes up. I mean, we're talking about literally hundreds of millions of dollars every two years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and these in- the incumbents of the people are challenging them. They're afraid to speak out, and it's just a, a absolute um, miscarriage of democracy, I think it's fair to say. I mean, right now, uh, we have a situation, just as we're speaking today, another media consolidation issue, um, and that is the issue of the FCC preparing to vote on the AT&T Bell South merger. Um, looks like on Friday, the FCC's general counsel uh, ruled that the report Republican uh, FCC Commissioner Robert McDowell um, can vote on the merger. For the past year, McDowell has been largely prevented by ethics rules for participating in proceedings because his former employer, Comptel, um, had been a party to uh, this merger. And we are seeing this just over and over again. So now it's AT&T and Bell South. We're very concerned about net neutrality, you know, network neutrality, the issue of the privatization of the Internet. We need a free and open Internet so that, you know, we can answer corporate globalization with grassroots global communication, and it's got to be free. 
This was developed on the taxpayer money. Uh, the net, the the net being privatized is a great um, would be just a great challenge to a great undermining of democracy. And this really does uh, transcend any type of political positions. I mean, people on the right, uh, people on the left, any uh, any uh, group of Americans or uh, citizens, just a period. Uh, I mean, across the world, who want to have access. Uh, to uh, being able to contact and communicate with uh, their fellow citizens. Uh, I mean, it's sort of irrelevant what, where you stand on the political spectrum it, unless you look at it in terms of, uh, you know, really this is an issue of uh, corporatists versus just individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, and you're right. This is something that cuts across the political spectrum. Conservative Republicans care about this as much as uh, Democrats, progressives, independents. That's why, you know, I see a lot of these issues where conservative and liberal lines are breaking down, whether it's around global warming or whether it's around the war in Iraq or corporate control. Uh, this is an issue many people unite on. It's just the few media moguls that are writing the laws. That's the problem. They have control of the pen in Washington, and we've got to challenge that. And the fact that there are Democrats in control in Washington should not make people breathe any any easier. Um, people at the grassroots have to be the leaders in this case. Why boast at thyself, O evil man? Playing smart and not being clever. Oh no, I say your word. Right now, we're back with author and Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. We're talking about the final installment of his Bush at War trilogy, State of Denial. You know, one of the things that, you know, I found most frustrating, and I think a lot of other people did, is, you know, where was the press during the first four years? Why would, why didn't we see the kind of criticism of the president, the kind of tough questioning that these decisions really merited? Why could the president get away? with essentially with bringing us to war on this very very flimsy evidence there was a kind of a drumbeat in the press for this war and I, I think there was in some quarters but if you look at the chronology uh, Bobby uh, the Congress voted three to one in favor of a resolution in October 2003 supporting a war giving Bush a blank check to use the U.S. military as he deemed necessary and appropriate to deal with Saddam Hussein. There was but wide. I mean, isn't, isn't that the type? That's the type of thing that the press. That's the type of decision that the press should be out there ridiculing and criticizing Congress. Well, for. The, the, I mean, Congress would, has made all kinds of terrible mistakes in history, <laughs> and okay. the, the, the one. 
the one thing that we we kind of count on that the American public kind of count on to restrain that kind of demagoguery in Congress and is a very aggressive press that's willing to stand up and speak. Yes, I, I would agree. We and particularly myself should have been much more critical. I will uh, accept that responsibility. At the same time. You have all the intelligence agencies, not just in the United States, but in the world, saying that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. There is no way at that point that I, as a journalist, could go into Iraq by myself or with a team of reporters and try to independently assess whether, in fact, there were weapons of mass destruction. What I find alarming is that at that time, the general in charge of looking for weapons of mass destruction had doubts. And I quote from a, me a secret memo that Rumsfeld himself wrote. He was listing all the 29 things that might go wrong if there's a war. And he literally said, we may not find weapons of mass destruction on the ground. So he had some doubts. The general in charge of intelligence had some doubts. And there was no process to surface that in the government. I wish I had known that at the time. I did not. Those were secret reports and discussions and assessments that were made privately and by and large not written down. But within the government... There was the doubt. But, but Bob, you know, you had people out there like Scott Ritter and Joseph Wilson and other people who were taking apart the major presumptions of those assertions. But, and who were saying, know, wait they, a second, they, that is not, you know, they, the five or six pieces of evidence that they have that there's weapons of mass destruction actually aren't true. You know, we don't, you're, we you're really don't have any evidence. Right. But they insisted they were true, and Joe Wilson and Scott yeah, Ritter did not, if I may for a moment, did not have contemporary evidence. The intelligence agencies in the government said they did. As you well remember, Colin Powell, a month, six weeks before war, went before the U.N., and you know one of the most uh, unfortunate presentations in history and convinced people like you remember the late great Mary McGrory columnist for the Washington Post after she listened to Powell's briefing she said I'm convinced I believe it it was very difficult now I'm with you on the press's responsibility and we should have found some way we should have been more aggressive we should have if necessary, gone into Iraq. We should have done many, many more things. At the moment Bush pulled the plug and ordered war, or decided on war in January 2003, Hans Blix, the chief UN weapons inspector, had publicly stated he had gone to 300 of the suspected weapons of mass destruction sites and found nothing. That is a moment when we should have raised holy hell. I agree. Bob Woodward, what's interesting to me is in, in retrospect, looking back at these decisions now, it's one thing to be able to say we were wrong, that the intelligence agencies were wrong, what we were told was wrong. That's one thing. Being wrong is not a sin. It's one thing to tr to give something a legitimate go at trying to find out the truth and finding out the wrong thing. It's another thing to have documented, which we have now done after the fact, to find out that what we were being told at the time in public was not the same thing that the decision makers who were talking to us knew 
knew in private. We know about the caveats that were excised from the National Intelligence Estimate. That's not getting it wrong. You know, That's I've lying. Spent part, I've, I've spent part of my life on this, and there's no doubt that the administration and the president in particular and the vice president overstated the evidence they had. But those parts of the National Intelligence Estimate were not excised. They were downplayed in the estimate. There were some internal doubts, but they didn't really surface. And, uh, you know, look, I'm with Bobby on this. Put it on our back. Say the press has a responsibility. I think we always have to look at it. We have to learn a lesson from this. But there are limitations. And that's not an excuse. That's an explanation of why. Look, I had three sources who told me. The evidence on weapons of mass destruction is much skimpier than they say. Mm. And I was about to write a story about this, and I talked to the sources who were really excellent, sound people. I said, oh, do you believe that there are weapons of mass destruction? And they said, oh, yes, yeah, sure, we believe it. They all believed it. They just said the evidence is skimpier. So you have a kind of evaluation that is, well, there's no smoking gun. And I wrote stories for the Washington Post before the war saying that. But still, everyone's convinced they had it. Now, I should have been more skeptical. They should have been more skeptical. But I would not take anyone off the hook for being wrong. It's the job of the president and the people who run the intelligence agencies to set up a process that makes sure they get it right. And then this is a more important part of that. If they don't know, then that's what they have to say. They have yep, to be yep. truthful about what they don't know. Part of that process, exactly, has to be positing an alternate hypothesis, the hypothesis that there aren't weapons of mass destruction and finding out whether that's equally credible. And that's something they were never able to do because nobody was willing to shout that. Hey, maybe this isn't true. You know, we've had Scott Ritter on this show. You know, his point is, is look, Saddam was letting us into every place that we wanted to go. The only places they weren't were places where they had good reasons not to want us, like in the security apparatus, but these were places, or in the palace itself, but these were places that they had good reason for not wanting to let foreign inspectors who they knew were in touch with the CIA and other people who wanted to perhaps assassinate Saddam, that they wouldn't, wouldn't exclude him. But, you know, the larger point here is that we want to elect leaders who have judgment and who are skeptical about, you know, all of these kind of assessments. And what really seems to me happen here is that these people were cherry picking evidence to get to an agenda that they wanted from the beginning. That's the conventional accusation. There's some truth in it, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that when you don't know, you have to say you don't know. When you don't have good evidence, you have to stand up and say, we don't have good evidence. That's the failure. They, look, I've written this a number of times. They had four human sources in Iraq. Iraq had been essentially run by Saddam. It was a closed, denied area for decades. And those four human sources, none of them were uh, in the inner circle that Saddam had. None of them were in the military or the intelligence agencies. They didn't know squat about what was going on. They should have come out and said, we don't know. You think that there was a time in American history where the press would have been more skeptical? That's a, that's a fair, I mean, it's not a matter of being skeptical. It's a matter of how do you get to evidence 
that will present an alternative view. And the, the best evidence is inside Iraq. And I'll repeat myself, I just didn't think we could get there. We couldn't. Except, except that the other view is, well, we just have to, I mean, what you're assuming here, Bob, with the, present, the underlying presumption is that until we can get at that intelligence, we just have to trust whatever no. the White no. House politicians are saying. And I, you know, I think- No, it's not the White House politicians. It, 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 these are people, in the bowels of the intelligence community who Except were sourced you had people like Scott Ritter and, and Joseph Wilson were saying time. He, he'd been there well, in the 90s no no he was part of the weapons inspection team that was that was working for Hans Blitz that was ejected from Iraq immediately before the war and he yeah. was saying the whole time there are no weapons here we cannot find them we're being allowed to, in every location where we asked to go. Well, as we you know, Bl Blick said that, but Blick also said he can't say there are no weapons someplace. Well, I can't know, prove a negative. I can't well, prove I mean, a negative. You, you, know, you, you, I, you can look, still say I, that. Rumsfeld is still saying that. I, 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 I am. I am in agreement of put the put the monkey on our back. And what I'm trying to say is that there was lots of skepticism, and when you were dealing with the, you know, it's it's kind of like the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, there weren't many people in the intelligence agencies or the press that predicted that. Why? Because no one knew much about the Soviet Union, really. People were able to get there, but it was hard. It was hard to travel. It was hard to move around. It was really hard to assess that this was a, uh, a country that was collapsing into itself. When you're dealing with an autocracy in a country like Iraq, it's mighty difficult. So you go around and talk to people. Look, I've known people for decades who were in the intelligence world who said they believed Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. It's not the, just the White House politicians or Colin Powell. But I'm glad you're being aggressive in questioning me on this. <laughs> well, it's an issue that we always, you know, that we deal with regularly on this show is, you know, how do we get the fourth estate to play this critical role in our democracy, which is you cannot well, have, an, you cannot have a democracy for long without an informed public. And your book does an excellent job of really looking at the inner workings, a job that nobody else has been able to do of this administration and how these decisions came to be made.
Morning from Los Angeles. It's in the quintessential movie about this city, Chinatown. Morty the mortician turns to Jack Nicholson's character and says, middle of a drought and the water commissioner drowns only in L.A. Tonight, a real-life equivalent. Middle of a dinner honoring the sanctity of the First Amendment and the former Speaker of the House talks about restricting freedom of speech only in the Republican Party. Our fifth story on the countdown, it might have been his first attempt to fire up his base for a possible presidential run, or it might have been something more ominous. But Newt Gingrich has actually proposed a different set of rules and invoked the bogeyman of terror. Gingrich was the featured speaker at the annual Naki S. Loeb First Amendment Award Dinner in Manchester, New Hampshire last night, where he not only argued that campaign finance reform and the separation of church and state should be rethought, because they allegedly hurt the First Amendment, but he also suggested that new rules might be necessary to stop terrorists using freedom of speech to get out their message. Here is his rationalization. My prediction to you is that either before we lose a city, or if we are truly stupid after we lose a city, we will adopt rules of engagement that use every technology we can find to break up their capacity to use the Internet, to break up their free speech and to go after people who want to kill us to stop them from recruiting people before they get to reach out and convince young people to destroy their lives while destroying us. If you're going to destroy freedom of speech, Bub, you've already lost all the cities. And to paraphrase Pastor Martin Niemöller's poem about Germany in the 30s and 40s, first they came for the Fourth Amendment, then they came for habeas corpus, then they came for free speech. And there was no one allowed to speak up. The politics in a moment. First to discuss the constitutionality of this. I'm joined by George Washington University law professor and constitutional law expert, Jonathan Turley. Jonathan, as always, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Keith. So the conventional wisdom on this is he's trying to breathe life into the same scare tactics that worked so well for the president and the vice president until four weeks ago. But could this be more nefarious than just politics? Could any president really gut free speech in the name of counterterrorism? They could. I mean, it's bizarre it would occur at a First Amendment speech. God knows what he'd say at a Mother's Day speech. But, uh, you know, this really could happen. I mean, the fact is the First Amendment is an abstraction. And when you put up against it the idea of incinerating millions of people, there will be millions of citizens that respond, uh, uh, like some Pavlovian response, and deliver up rights. We've already seen that. Uh, people don't seem to appreciate that you really can't save a constitution by destroying it. We asked Mr. Gingrich's office for the full speech. To their credit, they've provided most of it to us late relative to our deadline. But let me read you a little bit more of this that we've just gotten, Jonathan. I want to suggest to you that we right now should be impaneling people to look seriously at a level of supervision that we would never dream of if it were not for the scale of this threat, that's one quote. This is a serious long-term war, Gingrich added, and it will inevitably lead us to want to know what is said in every suspect place in the country. It will lead us to learn how to close down every website that is dangerous. Jonathan, are there not legal methods already in place to deal with such sites that do not require what Mr. Gingrich has here called supervision that we would never dream of? Well, there are uh, plenty of, of uh, powers and authorities that can be used to monitor truly dangerous people. But what you see here, I think, is the insatiable appetite that is developed among certain leaders for controlling American society. We saw that with John Ashcroft not long after 9-11, when he said that critics were aiding and abetting uh, the terrorists. There is this insatiable appetite that develops when you feed absolute power uh, to people like Gingrich. 
Uh, and people should not assume that these are just going to be fringe candidates and this could never happen. Fear does amazing things to people, and it can cause a sort of self-mutilation in a democracy where we give up the very things, the very rights that define us, and theoretically the very things that we are defending. So, and also, when you talk about closing down Internet sites, who is the one who's going to decide which those are? I mean, it could be uh, the Daily Coast. It could be Citizens for Legitimate Government. It could be the sports website Deadspin, for all we know, if, they don't, if he doesn't like any one of them in particular. Well, what these guys don't understand is that the best defense against bad ideas like extremism and terrorism is free speech. That's what we've proven. That's why they don't like us, is that we're remarkably successful as a democracy because we've shown that really bad ideas don't survive in the marketplace unless you try to suppress them, unless you try to keep people from speaking. Then it becomes a form of martyrdom. Then you give credence to what they're saying. Last question, the specific idea about the Internet. There was a story just today out of Toronto that researchers at a Canadian university developed some software that will let users in places like China that have Internet restrictions, uh, the phrase they used was, hop over government's Internet firewalls. Might it be that the technology will be our best defense against the Newt Gingriches of this country? It may be. We may have to rely on our own creativity to overcome the inclinations of people like Newt Gingrich. The George Washington University law professor and constitutional law expert, and I think it's fair to say friend of the Constitution, Jonathan Turley. Great, thanks, John. Thanks, Keith. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long But I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too hard living But I'm afraid to die Cause I don't know what's up there Beyond the sky It's been a long But I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will I go to the movie And I go downtown Somebody keep telling me don't Hang around It's been a long So Jerry Klein gets on a WMAL 6.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C. and says, um, you know what, these Muslims, they're dangerous. And so what we need to do is we need to be able to identify them. Hmm. And uh, he says, what we need to do is put a crescent-shaped tattoo or maybe a distinctive armband on Muslims. Oh, I'm already thinking that he's uh, uh, messing with them. As I said earlier. Yeah, all right, so he may, he not, be, he may not be concerned. Right. right. Uh, but I think he is. I th- but I think he just sensed like we've, we've, this has gone too far, right? Mm-hmm. And he wanted to see how far it can go, and he wanted to see what the uh, audience reaction was. He said he was honestly surprised. He thought there could be a lot of people yelling at him, what are you, nuts, etc. Everybody was like, oh, Jerry, wait, that's a good point. 
Well, then he's definitely conservative because that's who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you said, honestly, there are no liberals outside of Air America and a couple of other shows that we right. know who they are. The rest of yeah. everyone else on radio is conservative. No, unless he maybe has a show about uh, you know, on the weekends, money or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right? No, no, and he does have a show on the weekends. Like sometimes they'll throw in like a token yeah, random yeah. liberal and a sea of oh, but the but the the station is clearly conservative because all stations outside of Air it's America a big, are giant, conservative. Uh, powerful station in Washington D.C. has been for years. And so the first caller says, "Oh, you're off your rock." So we're off to a good start. Okay, that's good. That's the reaction they should have. Uh, the second congratulated him, saying. Not only uh, do you tattoo them in the middle of their forehead, but you should ship them out of this country. They're here to kill us. So he thought the tattoo on their arms was not enough, the second caller. He thought we should tattoo them on their foreheads. Um, And then uh, another caller calls in and says, what good is identifying them? You have to set up encampments like we did during World War II with the Japanese and the Germans. Which, by the way, we didn't do it for the Germans. You see, remember, the Germans were white. We just did it for the Japanese. Uh, So then... Caller after caller after caller. There, he said there, there was a minority of callers saying it's a bad idea. The overwhelming majority of the callers were like, yeah, of course. You put it on their license. You give them an armband. You tattoo them. You make sure we find out who the Muslims are. They're here to kill. So you drive them out of the country or you put them in camps. And if they're not in camps, then at least let's figure out who they are because they're dangerous. For those of you who still don't get it, of course, the Germans put tattoos on people. And they made them wear armbands. Well, not with, of course, the Crescent, but the Jewish Star and uh, Star David and with pink for gay and, and w- whatever other insignias they had for gypsies and, and poles, etc., etc. And it, Jerry Klein said he was flabbergasted. He finally told his audience, I was, you know, doing this to see what your reaction was, and I'm sickened by your reaction. Uh, and he said, now I see how the Germans did it. Because it's not, it's not, un- I-, I see it. You, there you are. You're willing to do it. And it's not a small minority. It's even in Washington, D.C., which is a very, very liberal place, you know, the way they vote, of course. You know, you get, and obviously the station reaches the suburbs, et cetera, which are not as liberal. Well, also it reaches, you know, people work on Capitol Hill who are mixed. And, mm-hmm. you know. But you see, it's out there. And then, then somebody else did a poll and found out some very discouraging numbers on uh, how Americans feel about Real Muslims. quick, I'm uh, looking up uh, uh, first of all, WMAO carries the Rush Limbaugh show, so they have a conservative uh, programming lineup there in Washington, D.C. He might be, uh, he, he's described here as WMAL's senior uh, uh, producer and a producer for the Chris Core show, but he does a show on weekends with uh, uh, Chris Plant, uh, who is uh, the son of uh, longtime uh, CBS News correspondent uh, Bill Plant. I had uh, drinks once with uh, Chris Plant. He was a, a reporter for a long time at CNN. I don't know whether he, he still is, but we were talking politics that night with another friend of mine who was a reporter for ABC. And uh, Chris Plant is a conservative. I mean, uh, I don't know whether it comes out in his reporting. I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, but uh, he's a conservative. So and, and, and Jerry Klein says, every Sunday at 2, I mix it up with Chris Plant. So my hunch is Jerry Klein, who probably does the two hours a week here, uh, is is actually a liberal and was was making this point and 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 as it said, it stunned him. So I, I don't think he's a conservative, right? Uh, but it is an overwhelmingly conservative station. Definitely. I remember when we went on WRKO in Boston, another station, uh, many years ago. Now Boston's supposed to be liberal. We had nothing but wall to wall, ridiculously Neanderthalish conservative. Uh, callers call it, oh, kill them all, was a common theme. And finally here, uh, there's a lot of interesting poll numbers here, but I do want to share one with you so that you understand it's not a minority of Americans. Um, 
or an insignificant minority of Americans, 30, according to a Gallup poll, 39% of Americans favor requiring Muslims in the United States, including American citizens, to carry special identification. Man, such a huge chunk of this country has no idea what it stands for. should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits 
of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deed, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. about free speech, failed speakers, and the delusions of grandeur. This is a serious long-term war, the man at the podium cried, and it will inevitably lead us to want to know what is said in every suspect place in the country. Some in the audience must have thought they were hearing an arsonist give the keynote address at a convention of firefighters. This was the annual Loeb First Amendment dinner in Manchester, New Hampshire, a public cherishing of freedom of speech in the state with the two-fisted motto, live free or die. And the arsonist at the microphone, the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, was insisting that we must attach an on-off button to free speech. He offered the time-tested excuse, trotted out by our demagogues since even before the Republic was founded. Widespread death of Americans in America, possibly at the hands of Americans. But updated now to include terrorists using the Internet for recruitment and result, quote, losing a city. The colonial English defended their repression with words like those, and so did the slave states, and so did the policemen who shot strikers, and so did Lindbergh's America First crowd, and so did those who interned Japanese Americans, and so did those behind the Red Scare, and so did Nixon's plumbers. The genuine proportion of the threat is always irrelevant. The fear the threat is exploited to create becomes the only reality. We will adopt rules of engagement that use every technology we can find, Mr. Gingrich continued, about terrorists, formerly communists, formerly hippies, formerly fifth columnists, formerly anarchists, formerly redcoats, to break up their capacity to use the Internet, to break up their capacity to use free speech. Mr. Gingrich, the British broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1770s. The pro-slavery leaders broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1850s. The FBI and the CIA broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1960s. It is within those groups where you would have found your kindred spirits, Mr. Gingrich, those who had no faith in freedom no faith in this country, and ultimately no faith even in the strength of their own ideas to stand up on their own legs without having the playing field tilted entirely to their benefit. Now convenient it is that we are told just today that the government has warned the stock markets and U.S. banks that it has learned of an al-Qaeda threat to penetrate and destroy their websites. 
That learning followed immediately by a statement from Homeland Security that there is no corroboration of the threat. It will lead us to learn, Gingrich had continued in New Hampshire, how to close down every website that is dangerous. And it will lead us to a very severe approach to people who advocate the killing of Americans and advocate the use of nuclear and biological weapons. That we have always had a very severe approach to these people is insufficient for Mr. Gingrich's ends. He wants to somehow ban the idea, even though everyone who has ever protested a movie or a piece of music or a book has learned the same lesson. Try to suppress it and you only validate it. Make it illegal, and you make it the subject of curiosity. Say it cannot be said, and it will instead be screamed. And on top of the thundering danger and his eagerness to sell out freedom of speech, there is a sadder sound still, the tinny crash of a garbage can lid on a sidewalk. Whatever dreams of Internet censorship float like a miasma in Mr. Gingrich's personal swamp, whatever hopes he has of an iron firewall, the simple fact is, technically, they won't work. As of tomorrow, they will have been defeated by a free computer download. Mere hours after Gingrich's speech in New Hampshire, the University of Toronto announced it had come up with a program called Siphon to liberate those in countries in which the Internet is regulated, places like China and Iran, where political ideas are so barren and political leaders so desperate that they put up computer firewalls to keep thought and freedom out. The siphon device is a relay of sorts that can surreptitiously link a computer user in an imprisoned country with another computer user in a free country. The Chinese think their wall still works, yet the ideas, good ideas, bad ideas, indifferent ideas, pass through that wall anyway, the same way the Soviet bloc was defeated by the images of Western material bounty. If your hopes of thought control can be defeated, Mr. Gingrich, merely by one computer whiz staying up an extra half an hour and devising a new firewall hop, what is all this apocalyptic hyperbole for? I further think, you said in Manchester, we should propose a Geneva Convention for Fighting Terrorism, which makes very clear that those who would fight outside the rules of law, those who would use weapons of mass destruction, and those who would target civilians, are in fact subject to a totally different set of rules that allow us to protect civilization by defeating barbarism. Well, Mr. Gingrich, what is more massively destructive than trying to get us to give you our freedom? And what is someone seeking to hamstring the First Amendment doing if not fighting outside the rules of law? And what is the suppression of knowledge and freedom if not barbarism? The explanation, of course, is in one last quote from Mr. Gingrich from New Hampshire and another quote from him from last week. I want to suggest to you, he said about these Internet restrictions, that we right now should be impaneling people to look seriously at a level of supervision that we would never dream of if it weren't for the scale of the threat. And who should those impaneled people be? Funny I should ask, isn't it, Mr. Gingrich? I am not running for president, you told a reporter from Fortune magazine. I am seeking to create a movement to win the future by offering a series of solutions so compelling that if the American people say, I have to be president, it will happen. Newt Gingrich sees in terrorism not something to be exterminated, but something to be exploited. It is his golden opportunity, isn't it? Rallying a nation, you might say, to hysteria, to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. That, of course, is from the original version of the movie The Manchurian Candidate, the chilling words of Angela Lansbury's character as she first promises to sell her country out to the Chinese and Russians, then reveals she will double-cross them and keep all the power to herself, 
waving the flag every time she subjugates another freedom. Within the frame of our experience as a free and freely argumentative people, it is almost impossible to conceive that there are those among us who might approach the kind of animal wildness of fiction like the Manchurian candidate, those who would willingly transform our beloved country into something false and terrible. Who among us can look into our own histories or those of our ancestors who struggled to get here or who struggled to get freedom after they were forced here and not tear up when we read Frederick Douglass's words from a century and a half ago. Freedom must take the day. Who among us can look to our collective history and not see its turning points, like the Civil War, like Watergate, like the revolution itself, in which the right idea defeated the wrong idea on the battlefield that is the marketplace of ideas? But apparently there are some of us who cannot see that the only future for America is one that cherishes the freedoms we won in the past, an America in which we vanquish bad ideas with better ideas, in which we fight for liberty by having more liberty and not less. I am seeking to create a movement to win the future by offering a series of solutions so compelling that if the American people say I have to be president, it will happen. What a dark place your world must be, Mr. Gingrich, where the way to save America is to destroy America. I will awaken every day of my life thankful I am not with you in that dark place. And I will awaken every day of my life thankful that you are entitled to tell me about it and that you are entitled to show me what an evil idea lurks there and what a cynical mind and that you are entitled to do all that thanks to the very freedoms you seek to suffocate. Good night and good luck. Thanks for listening, everybody. I just want to clean house a little bit today. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention that one clip in today's show was provided by a, a great listener, Nick Dupree. And the reason I, I specifically mentioned that is because the, the clip was submitted so long ago that it uh, that Nick would have every reason to believe that his submission was completely ignored and, or discarded. And that's just not the case, obviously. But I just wanted to mention that uh, case in point, in that uh, if you are one of the fine people who help make this show possible by either uh, submitting the ideas for clips or actually help in the editing process, uh, sometimes clips are held for you know many days or, or weeks before being produced into a show. Usually that only happens if, if they're timeless clips, you know, if they're not, if it's not a time-sensitive subject, then, then they can be held for, uh, um, to be used at the, at a perfect time. So I just wanted to mention that, make sure he knows that, uh, he, he was not, uh, forgotten or anything along those lines, and that he and all of the people who submit clips or, or anything else having to do with the show uh, are greatly appreciated. Also today I just need to mention that Billy from Oregon can now finally get a good night's sleep knowing he no longer has to remind me that Dig has now opened up a brand new podcasting section on their website. If you're not familiar with Dig, it's basically democracy in action on the internet. They started out uh, mostly dealing with news stories and, and websites, 
but um, basically what happens is uh, any any website or uh, or news story and now podcast can be submitted to dig and then is uh, voted on essentially by the dig community if you like something you dig it then you you say you like it and the more digs it gets the higher the profile uh, that item is so I, I just need to mention that now the best of left podcast is submitted to the podcast directory on dig and so if you're familiar with that or want to be uh, you can go check that out, dig it. The more people who do, the higher the show rises in the rankings, etc., etc. You can find the link for that right on the homepage at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Conveniently enough, right next to the Podcast Alley link. Essentially the same thing. Votes, rankings, etc., etc. All of that's always appreciated. Um, so if you just happen to have the burning desire to make your feelings known and if you like the show and want to support it then that's uh, a couple of great ways to do it and finally i i just have to say uh today's episode was another episode produced by my new uh friend awesome living in uh, spain american living in spain helping produce the show i think he did another fantastic job so i uh, just have to give him a little shout out, even though I don't like that uh, phrase. I don't know um, how else to say it. So uh, good, good work to him. Thanks to everybody for all your support, and I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one, everybody.